Saturnes Letters, Letter Three of Biographia Literaria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Biographia Literaria by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Saturnes Letters, Letter Three. Ratzeburg. No little fish thrown back again into the water, no fly unimprisoned from a child's hand could more buoyantly enjoy its element than i this clean and peaceful house with this lovely view of the town groves and lake of ratzeburg from the window at which i am writing my spirit certainly and my health i fancied were beginning to sink under the noise dirt and unwholesome air of our hamburg hotel i left it on sunday september twenty third with a letter of introduction from the poet klopstock to the amtmann of ratzeburg the amtmann received me with kindness and introduced me to the worthy pastor who agreed to board and lodge me for any length of time not less than a month the vehicle in which i took my place was considerably larger than an english stage-coach to which it bore much the same proportion and rude resemblance that an elephant's ear does to the human its top was composed of naked boards of different colours and seeming to have been parts of different wainscots instead of windows there were leathern curtains with a little eye of glass in each they perfectly answered the purpose of keeping out the prospect and letting in the cold i could observe little therefore but the inns and farmhouses at which we stopped they were all alike except in size one great room like a barn with a hayloft over it the straw and hay dangling in tufts through the boards which formed the ceiling of the room and the floor of the loft from this room which is paved like a street sometimes one sometimes two smaller ones are enclosed at one end these are commonly floored in the large room the cattle pigs poultry men women and children live in amicable community yet there was an appearance of cleanliness and rustic comfort one of these houses i measured it was an hundred feet in length and the apartments were taken off from one corner between these and the stalls there was a small interspace and here the breadth was forty-eight feet but thirty-two where the stalls were of course the stalls were on each side eight feet in depth the faces of the cows etc were turned towards the room indeed they were in it so that they had at least the comfort of seeing each other's faces stall feeding is universal in this part of germany a practice concerning which the agriculturist and the poet are likely to entertain opposite opinions or at least to have very different feelings the woodwork of these buildings on the outside is left unplastered as in old houses among us and being painted red and green it cuts and tessellates the buildings very gaily from within three miles of hamburg almost to moln which is thirty miles from it the country as far as i could see it was a dead flat only varied by woods at moln it became more beautiful i observed a small lake nearly surrounded with groves and a palace in view belonging to the king of great britain and inhabited by the inspector of the forests we were nearly the same time in travelling the thirty-five miles from hamburg to ratzeburg as we had been in going from london to yarmouth one hundred and twenty-six miles the lake of ratzeburg runs from south to north about nine miles in length and varying in breadth from three miles to half a mile about a mile from the southernmost point it is divided into two of course very unequal parts by an island which being connected by a bridge and a narrow slip of land with the one shore and by another bridge of immense length with the other shore forms a complete isthmus on this island the town of ratzeburg is built the pastor's house of vicarage together with the amtmann's amtschreibers and the church stands near the summit of a hill which slopes down to the slip of land and the little bridge from which through a superb military gate you step into the island town of ratzeburg this again is itself a little hill by ascending and descending which you arrive at the long bridge and so to the other shore the water to the south of the town is called the little lake which however almost engrosses the beauties of the whole 
the shores being just often enough green and bare to give the proper effect to the magnificent groves which occupy the greater part of their circumference from the turnings windings and indentations of the shore the views vary almost every ten steps and the whole has a sort of majestic beauty a feminine grandeur at the north of the great lake and peeping over it i see the seven church towers of lubeck at the distance of twelve or thirteen miles yet as distinctly as if they were not three the only defect in the view is that ratzeburg is built entirely of red bricks and all the houses roofed with red tiles to the eye therefore it presents a clump of brick-dust red yet this evening october tenth twenty minutes past five i saw the town perfectly beautiful and the whole softened down into complete keeping if i may borrow a term from the painters the sky over ratzeburg and all the east was a pure evening blue while over the west it was covered with light sandy clouds hence a deep red light spread over the whole prospect in undisturbed harmony with the red town the brown red woods and the yellow red reeds on the skirts of the lake two or three boats with single persons paddling them floated up and down in the rich light which not only was itself in harmony with all but brought all into harmony i should have told you that i went back to hamburg on thursday september twenty seventh to take leave of my friend who travelled southward and returned hither on the monday following from Empfelde, a village half-way from ratzeburg i walked to hamburg through deep sandy roads and a dreary flat the soil everywhere white hungry and excessively pulverized but the approach to the city is pleasing light cool country houses which you can look through and see the gardens behind them with arbours and trellis-work and thick vegetable walls and trees in cloisters and piazzas each house with neat rails before it and green seats within the rails every object whether the growth of nature or the work of man was neat and artificial it pleased me far better than if the houses and gardens and pleasure-fields had been in a nobler taste for this nobler taste would have been mere apery the busy anxious money-loving merchant of hamburg could only have adopted he could not have enjoyed the simplicity of nature the mind begins to love nature by imitating human conveniences in nature but this is a step in intellect though a low one and were it not so yet all around me spoke of innocent enjoyment and sensitive comforts and i entered with unscrupulous sympathy into the enjoyments and comforts even of the busy anxious money-loving merchants of hamburg in this charitable and catholic mood i reached the vast ramparts of the city these are huge green cushions one rising above the other with trees growing in the interspaces pledges and symbols of a long peace of my return i have nothing worth communicating except that i took extra post which answers to posting in england these north german post chases are uncovered wicker carts an english dust-cart is a piece of finery a chef d'oeuvre of mechanism compared with them and the horses a savage might use their ribs instead of his fingers for a numeration table wherever we stopped the postilion fed his cattle with the brown rye bread of which he eat himself all breakfasting together only the horses had no gin to their water and the postilion no water to his gin now and henceforward for subjects of more interest to you and to the objects in search of which i left you namely the literati and literature of germany believe me i walked with an impression of awe on my spirits as w and myself accompanied mr klopstock to the house of his brother the poet which stands about a quarter of a mile from the city gate it is one of a row of little commonplace summer-houses for so they looked with four or five rows of young meagre elm-trees before the windows beyond which is a green and then a dead flat intersected with several roads whatever beauty thought i may be before the poet's eyes at present it must certainly be purely of his own creation we waited a few minutes in a neat little parlour ornamented with the figures of two of the muses and with prints the subjects of which were from klopstock's odes the poet entered i was much disappointed in his countenance and recognised in it no likeness to the bust 
there was no comprehension in the forehead no weight over the eyebrows no expression of peculiarity moral or intellectual on the eyes no massiveness in the general countenance he is if anything rather below the middle size he wore very large half-boots which his legs filled so fearfully were they swollen however though neither w nor myself could discover any indications of sublimity or enthusiasm in his physiognomy we were both equally impressed with his liveliness and his kind and ready courtesy he talked in french with my friend and with difficulty spoke a few sentences to me in english his enunciation was not in the least affected by the entire want of his upper teeth the conversation began on his part by the expression of his rapture at the surrender of the detachment of french troops under general humbert their proceedings in ireland with regard to the committee which they had appointed with the rest of their organizing system seemed to have given the poet great entertainment he then declared his sanguine belief in nelson's victory and anticipated its confirmation with a keen and triumphant pleasure his words tones looks implied the most vehement anti-gallicanism the subject changed to literature and i inquired in latin concerning the history of german poetry and the elder german poets to my great astonishment he confessed that he knew very little on the subject he had indeed occasionally read one or two of their elder writers but not so as to enable him to speak of their merits professor eberling he said would probably give me every information of this kind the subject had not particularly excited his curiosity he then talked of milton and glover and thought glover's blank verse superior to milton's w and myself expressed our surprise and my friend gave his definition and notion of harmonious verse that it consisted the english iambic blank verse above all in the apt arrangement of pauses and cadences and the sweep of whole paragraphs with many a winding bout of link sweetness long drawn out and not in the even flow much less in the prominence of antithetic vigour of single lines which were indeed injurious to the total effect except where they were introduced for some specific purpose klopstock assented and said that he meant to confine glover's superiority to single lines he told us that he had read milton in a prose translation when he was fourteen i understood him thus myself and w interpreted klopstock's french as i had already construed it he appeared to know very little of milton or indeed of our poets in general he spoke with great indignation of the english prose translation of his messiah all the translations had been bad very bad but the english was no translation there were pages on pages not in the original and half the original was not to be found in the translation w told him that i intended to translate a few of his odes as specimens of german lyrics he then said to me in english i wish you would render into english some select passages of the messiah and revenge me of your countrymen it was the liveliest thing which he produced in the whole conversation he told us that his first ode was fifty years older than his last i looked at him with much emotion i considered him as the venerable father of german poetry as a good man as a christian seventy-four years old with legs enormously swollen yet active lively cheerful and kind and communicative my eyes felt as if a tear was swelling into them in the portrait of lessing there was a toupee periwig which enormously injured the effect of his physiognomy klopstock wore the same powdered and frizzled by the by old men ought never to wear powder the contrast between a large snow-white wig and the colour of an old man's skin is disgusting and wrinkles in such a neighbourhood appear only channels for dirt it is an honour to poets and great men that you think of them as parts of nature and anything of trick and fashion wounds you in them as much as when you see venerable ewes clipped into miserable peacocks the author of the messiah should have worn his own grey hair his powder and periwig were to the eye what mr virgil would be to the ear Klopstock dwelt much on the superior power which the German language possessed of concentrating meaning. He said he had often translated parts of Homer and Virgil line by line, and a German line proved always sufficient for a Greek or Latin one. In English you cannot do this. 
I answered that in English we could commonly render one Greek heroic line in a line and a half of our common heroic metre, and I conjectured that this line and a half would be found to contain no more syllables than one German or Greek hexameter. He did not understand me, and I, who wished to hear his opinions, not to correct them, was glad that he did not. We now took our leave. At the beginning of the French Revolution, Klopstock wrote odes of congratulation. He received some honorary presents from the French Republic, a golden crown, I believe, and like our priestly, was invited to a seat in the legislature, which he declined. But when French liberty metamorphosed herself into a fury, he sent back these presents with a palinodia, declaring his abhorrence of their proceedings, and since then he has been perhaps more than enough an anti-Gallican. I mean, that in his just contempt and detestation of the crimes and follies of the revolutionists, he suffers himself to forget that the revolution itself is a process of the divine providence, and that as the folly of men is the wisdom of God, so are their iniquities instruments of his goodness. From Klopstock's house we walked to the ramparts, discoursing together on the poet and his conversation, till our attention was diverted to the beauty and singularity of the sunset, and its effects on the objects around us. There were woods in the distance, a rich sandy light, nay, of a much deeper colour than sandy, lay over these woods that blackened in the blaze. Over that part of the woods which lay immediately under the intenser light, a brassy mist floated. The trees on the ramparts, and the people moving to and fro between them, were cut or divided into equal segments of deep shade and brassy light. Had the trees and the bodies of the men and women been divided into equal segments by a rule or pair of compasses, the portions could not have been more regular. All else was obscure. It was a fairy scene, and to increase its romantic character among the moving objects, thus divided into alternate shade and brightness, was a beautiful child, dressed with the elegant simplicity of an English child, riding on a stately goat, the saddle, bridle, and other accoutrements of which were in a high degree costly and splendid. Before I quit the subject of Hamburg, let me say that I remained a day or two longer than I otherwise should have done, in order to be present at the feast of St. Michael, the patron saint of Hamburg, expecting to see the civic pomp of this commercial republic. I was, however, disappointed. There were no processions. Two or three sermons were preached to two or three old women in two or three churches, and St. Michael and his patronage wished elsewhere by the higher classes, all places of entertainment, theatre, etc., being shut up on this day. In Hamburg there seems to be no religion at all. In Lübeck it is confined to the women. The men seem determined to be divorced from their wives in the other world, if they cannot in this. You will not easily conceive a more singular sight than is presented by the vast aisle of the principal church at Lübeck, seen from the organ-loft. For being filled with female servants and persons in the same class of life, and all their caps having gold and silver calls, it appears like a rich pavement of gold and silver. I will conclude this letter with the mere transcription of notes which my friend W. made of his conversations with Klopstock during the interviews that took place after my departure. On these I shall make but one remark at present and that will appear a presumptuous one, namely, that Klopstock's remarks on the venerable sage of Konigsberg are to my own knowledge injurious and mistaken, and so far is it from being true that his system is now given up, that throughout the universities of Germany there is not a single professor who is not either a Kantian or a disciple of Fichte, whose system is built on the Kantian and presupposes its truth, or lastly, who, though an antagonist of Kant as to his theoretical work, has not embraced wholly or in part his moral system, and adopted part of his nomenclature. Klopstock, having wished to see the Calvary of Cumberland, and asked what was thought of it in England, I went to Remnants, the English bookseller, where I procured the analytical review in which is contained the review of Cumberland's Calvary. I remembered to have read there some specimens of a blank verse translation of the Messiah. I had mentioned this to Klopstock, and he had a great desire to see them. 
I walked over to his house and put the book into his hands. On adverting to his own poem, he told me he began the Messiah when he was seventeen. He devoted three entire years to the plan without composing a single line. He was greatly at a loss in what manner to execute his work. There were no successful specimens of versification in the German language before this time. The first three cantos he wrote in a species of measured or numerous prose. This, though done with much labour and some success, was far from satisfying him. He had composed hexameters both Latin and Greek as a school exercise, and there had been also in the German language attempts in that style of versification. These were only of very moderate merit. One day he was struck with the idea of what could be done in this way. He kept his room a whole day, even went without his dinner, and found that in the evening he had written twenty-three hexameters, versifying a part of what he had before written in prose. From that time, pleased with his efforts, he composed no more in prose. Today he informed me that he had finished his plan before he read Milton. He was enchanted to see an author who before him had trod the same path. This is a contradiction of what he said before. He did not wish to speak of his poem to any one till it was finished, but some of his friends who had seen what he had finished tormented him till he had consented to publish a few books in a journal. He was then, I believe, very young, about twenty-five. The rest was printed at different periods, four books at a time. The reception given to the first specimens was highly flattering. He was nearly thirty years in finishing the whole poem, but of these thirty years not more than two were employed in the composition. He only composed in favourable moments. Besides, he had other occupations. He values himself upon the plan of his odes, and accuses the modern lyrical writers of gross deficiency in this respect. I laid the same accusation against Horace. He would not hear of it, but waived the discussion. He called Rousseau's Ode to Fortune a moral dissertation in stanzas. I spoke of Dryden since Cecilia, but he did not seem familiar with our writers. He wished to know the distinctions between our dramatic and epic blank verse. He recommended me to read his Hermann before I read either the Messiah or the Odes. He flattered himself that some time or other his dramatic poems would be known in England. He had not heard of Cooper. He thought that Voss, in his translation of the Iliad, had done violence to the idiom of the Germans, and had sacrificed it to the Greeks not remembering sufficiently that each language has its particular spirit and genius. He said Lessing was the first of their dramatic writers. I complained of Nathan as tedious. He said there was not enough of action in it, but that Lessing was the most chaste of their writers. He spoke favourably of Goethe, but said that his Sorrows of Werther was his best work, better than any of his dramas. He preferred the first written to the rest of Goethe's dramas. Schiller's Robbers he found so extravagant that he could not read it. I spoke of the scene of the setting sun. He did not know it. He said Schiller could not live. He thought Don Carlos the best of his dramas, but said that the plot was inextricable. It was evident he knew little of Schiller's works. Indeed, he said, he could not read them. Berger, he said, was a true poet and would live. That Schiller, on the contrary, must soon be forgotten. That he gave himself up to the imitation of Shakespeare, who often was extravagant, but that Schiller was ten thousand times more so. He spoke very slightingly of Kotzebue, as an immoral author in the first place, and next as deficient in power. At Vienna, said he, they are transported with him, but we do not reckon the people of Vienna either the wisest or the wittiest people of Germany. He said Wieland was a charming author and a sovereign master of his own language, that in this respect Goethe could not be compared to him, nor indeed could anybody else. He said that his fault was to be fertile to exuberance. I told him the Oberon had just been translated into English. He asked me if I was not delighted with the poem. I answered that I thought the story began to flag about the seventh or eighth book and observed that it was unworthy of a man of genius to make the interest of a long poem turn entirely upon animal gratification. He seemed at first disposed to excuse us by saying that they are different subjects for poetry, 
and that poets are not willing to be restricted in their choice i answered that i thought the passion of love as well suited to the purposes of poetry as any other passion but that it was a cheap way of pleasing to fix the attention of the reader through a long poem on the mere appetite well but said he you see that such poems please everybody i answered that it was the province of a great poet to raise people up to his own level not to descend to theirs he agreed and confessed that on no account whatsoever would he have written a work like the oberon he spoke in raptures of wieland's style and pointed out the passage where retzia is delivered of her child as exquisitely beautiful i said that i did not perceive any very striking passages but that i made allowance for the imperfections of a translation of the thefts of wieland he said they were so exquisitely managed that the greatest writers might be proud to steal as he did he considered the books and fables of old romance writers in the light of the ancient mythology as a sort of common property from which a man was free to take whatever he could make a good use of an englishman had presented him with the odes of collins which he had read with pleasure he knew little or nothing of gray except his elegy written in a country churchyard he complained of the fool in lear and observed that he seemed to give a terrible wildness to the distress but still he complained he asked whether it was not allowed that pope had written rhyme poetry with more skill than any of our writers i said i preferred dryden because his couplets had greater variety in their movement he thought my reason a good one but asked whether the rhyme of pope were not more exact this question i understood as applying to the final terminations and observed him that i believed it was the case but that i thought it was easy to excuse some inaccuracy in the final sounds if the general swap of the verse was superior i told him that we were not so exact with regard to the final endings of the lines as the french he did not seem to know that we made no distinction between masculine and feminine i e single or double rhymes at least he put inquiries to me on this subject he seemed to think that no language could be so far formed as that it might not be enriched by idioms borrowed from another tongue i said this was a very dangerous practice and added that i thought milton had often injured both his prose and verse by taking this liberty too frequently i recommended to him the prose works of dryden as models of pure and native english i was treading upon tender ground as i have reason to suppose that he has himself liberally indulged the practice the same day i dined at mr klopstock's where i had the pleasure of a third interview with the poet we talked principally about indifferent things i asked him what he thought of kant he said that his reputation was much on the decline in germany that for his own part he was not surprised to find it so as the works of kant were to him utterly incomprehensible that he had often been pestered by the kantians but was rarely in the practice of arguing with them his custom was to produce the book open it and point to a passage and beg they would explain it this they ordinarily attempted to do by substituting their own ideas i do not want i say an explanation of your own ideas but of the passage which is before us in this way i generally bring the dispute to an immediate conclusion he spoke of wolf as the first metaphysician they had in germany wolf had followers but they could hardly be called a sect and luckily till the appearance of kant about fifteen years ago germany had not been pestered by any sect of philosophers whatsoever but that each man had separately pursued his inquiries uncontrolled by the dogmas of a master kant had appeared ambitious to be the founder of a sect that he had succeeded but that the germans were now coming to their senses again that nikolai and engel had in different ways contributed to disenchant the nation but above all the incomprehensibility of the philosopher and his philosophy he seemed pleased to hear that as yet kant's doctrines had not met with many admirers in england did not doubt but that we had too much wisdom to be duped by a writer who set at defiance the common sense and common understandings of men we talked of tragedy he seemed to rate highly the power of exciting tears 
I said that nothing was more easy than to deluge an audience, that it was done every day by the meanest writers. I must remind you, my friend, first, that these notes are not intended as specimens of Klopstock's intellectual power, or even colloquial prowess, to judge of which by an accidental conversation, and this with strangers, and those two foreigners, would be not only unreasonable, but calumnious. Secondly, I attribute little other interest to the remarks than what is derived from the celebrity of the person who made them. Lastly, if you ask me whether I have read the Messiah, and what I think of it, I answer, as yet the first four books only, and as to my opinion, the reasons of which hereafter, you may guess it from what I could not help muttering to myself when the good pastor this morning told me, that Klopstock was the German Milton, a very German Milton indeed. Heaven preserve you, and S. T. Coleridge. End of letter 3